Welcome back to Calvary Baptist Church of Burbank. Last time we did a video devotional, we were looking at um, the reference to the Son of Man being lifted up in John 3 and that passage that it was referencing in Numbers 21. And in the context of that, we were talking a little bit about the importance of a true faith, not simply a faith that acknowledges historical facts, not simply a faith that can come from being taught uh, truths of the Christian faith, being raised in a Christian home, but rather a faith that comes from a complete um, bowing before the name of Jesus Christ. And it's on that theme that I want to continue um, if we look in the book of Isaiah. So if you don't have your Bible, good time to pause the video and, and go get it because you'll probably need it for this. We'll skim through a little bit. But I've been playing around in the final chapters of Isaiah and uh, they are some really great parts of scripture. Uh, the, the key themes being the, uh, the Messiah and him coming and him making all things right and particularly um, making all things right for the nation of Israel and God maintaining and keeping his promises to them. And, and then the, the entire world rejoicing uh, in the glory of God. Um, in the new heavens and the new earth. So with all of that, the I could go back a long, long way, but let's go back as far as chapter 61. And in chapter 61, it's a well-known passage. It's quoted by Jesus in a uh, part of it is anyway, in Luke chapter four. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He's sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And halfway through that second verse in Luke chapter four, Jesus cuts off. He, he, he simply says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he sits down to begin teaching the passage and he teaches and says this is fulfilled today in your midst. Um, the day of the vengeance of God, he doesn't mention because it wasn't fulfilled in his midst. The day of the Lord and the vengeance of God is something that is going to come at the second coming of Christ. Jesus was aware that he was only fulfilling the first part of his mission in the first coming. And therefore, that's why he broke off the quote. But here in Isaiah 61, it, it is all contained. And it speaks of the mission of the Messiah, first and second coming. And it talks about all that he will do. And then as we continue on through Isaiah, that second coming, that day of vengeance of our God, the day of the Lord, as it is commonly known in Isaiah, in chapter 63, it becomes more into focus when it says, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. It's clear there that there is this day of vengeance. That this is the, the judgment that comes and the one who brings judgment does so all alone. 
like one who is uh, stomping upon grapes in the wine press. His clothes are covered in, in red, which comes from the blood of those he brings judgment to. And it is clear from what he says, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, that this one is God. And the, the, the messianic figure of Isaiah being both God and man is, is a very key and central doctrine in the book of Isaiah. Just as an aside, I know that many people today will try and say that the idea of a God-man, of the Messiah being both fully God and fully man, that that was something that was invented by the church centuries after the time of Christ. Well, actually, they got the centuries right, but they got the, the timing completely wrong. It's centuries before the time of Christ. Isaiah was very... Um, clear on that particular point but anyway that's the second coming of Christ in chapter 63 and when you go through chapter 63 it talks about this second coming and it talks about how um, at the end of verse 9 of chapter 63 if you're following in his love and his pity he redeemed them he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old and there he's talking about uh, coming back to his people and maintaining the covenants with Israel and um, that his return is to do with him, uh, his compassion, with his goodness, with his uh, the abundance of his steadfast love, verse 7, because he will um, be saviour to his people. Now, verse 9, that then stops. So the first nine verses of chapter 63 is dealing with the second coming of Christ and returning and the redeeming of his people. And then in verse 10, it goes on to speak about why this redemption was necessary. But they rebelled, they grieved his Holy Spirit, therefore he turned to be the enemy and himself fought against them. It, it reminds us of this central theme, other central theme of Isaiah, the rebellion of God's people. The Jewish people turning um, against God, against his ways and being rebellious and, and committing idolatry, spiritual adultery, worshipping other gods. And they grieved the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was in their midst and they grieved him by living the way that they did in their rejection of God. And, and so chapter 63 in the second half is dealing with their rebellion and their sin that had led God to turn against them. Now, we're coming to chapter 64, which is really what I want to get to. But uh, as I often do, there's a long winded way about it. But anyway, verse 15 of chapter 63. They're then, um, they're then after he's talked about what he did for the people and how they turned against him. In verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer of old is your name. And so there is in this last day a calling out from the people of Israel. And it may well be that these are the few, the remnant who are believing. God always has a remnant of those who believe, who are calling out for God to redeem the people of Israel. And verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? 
And they recognise that the people as a whole not following God is because he's hardened their hearts, which goes way back to chapter five of Isaiah and is a theme that's run through the book, that because of their idolatry, God had hardened their hearts so that they couldn't repent. And now the remnant, the few who um, who were allowed to believe, the few who God maintained as believers throughout history, even to this day, that they are calling out on behalf of their people. And they recognise the hardening of the heart. Why have you done this? And they, they call for him to return. And they say in verse 18 and 19, your holy people held possession for a little while. They were only in the land very briefly. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. That seems to almost certainly be a reference to what happens specifically in end times. We have become... Like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And so chapter 63 ends. It ends with this double reference to the beginning and the end. There was this glorious time in the beginning when they had possession of much of the land. Not necessarily all of it, but much of it. And there was a glorious period of time, but it was very brief. And then there has been a time subsequently where they haven't had the land for the most part, but it's ended with the adversaries trampling down the temple. And as a result, they have become like those who, over whom God has never ruled. The good times are forgotten. The times of David, the times of the patriarchs, these are, these are but a distant memory. These are um, nothing that had, they have known for many a generation. And it's as if they are not called by his name. It's as if they're not his chosen people. And so that's how chapter 63 ends. So we have the, the this is all of our context before chapter 64. We have the Messiah. We have his first and second coming, the mission of the Messiah. We have the need for the mission because of the rebellion of the people of Israel. And the fact that when he does come back in chapter 63, that he is going to bring redemption to them. And that this is why that redemption was necessary because of the, their rejection of their God, of the, the Jewish people. And the, the, those who believe are going to call out for him. And then when we hit chapter 64, this is what I wanted to come to. I think it, it kind of followed on quite nicely from what we did last time. We come to the beginning of chapter 64, which seems to be the crying out for God to return. And the reason I wanted to come to this passage is because for me, it's a passage that though there's so much of it that it isn't really specific to us. It's talking about what is going to be said by a future generation of Israel at a, in a distant time, you know, coming coming up, not, not our time here today. But nonetheless, it is a very good illustration of what repentance looks like. And it's a very good illustration of people who were a people who had some degree of faith. Most Jews today still believe in God, but yet they're not saved because they've rejected God, which is we see clearly through their rejection of his son. That's something Jesus made clear in the Gospels. And so we have people here who are religious people, who are people who believe in God, broadly speaking, and at least some degree, who nonetheless don't have saving faith. And then we're seeing a repentance that expresses genuine faith. And whether chapter 64 is the remnant pleading for their people or whether this is actually the cry of the people in response to the plea of the remnant. Nonetheless, this is a great picture of repentance. You may be familiar with the opening verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Just a wonderful verse. 
that you would tear open the heavens. And there's, this is um, something that is, I'm not really sure quite how we view this intertextuality, because of course, this tearing is something that was picked up on by Mark. So Isaiah is talking about the tearing of the heavens and, and, I have no doubt that this is partly in Mark's mind when Mark talks about the, the tearing of the temple curtain at the death of Christ. That, that in, the, in the, the same way that God will one day tear open the heavens and come down for the sake of his people. So in the same way that the temple curtain was open to be able to allow God to fellowship with man, to reconcile God and man. But at the same time, I wonder when they actually come to say this, whether they're referencing back to Mark because they're understanding the significance of rending the heavens. That like the temple curtain, historical from their perspective, is being torn open. So God needs to tear open the heavens and come for his people. It's a, it's a funny little thing that with the, the both before and after. But the idea is this, that God would tear open the heavens, would come away from his place of distance. And, and they say that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil. There's no way that the double reference to fire there could be alienated from all the references to fire that will come on the day of the Lord, that will come on that day of vengeance, that will come at that time of judgment for the Jews. And so um, they are recognizing God's judgment and then they're crying out to the one who brought that judgment. Make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble in your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountain quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And they're saying that in the past, God has come down and the mountains have trembled and that they still believe he can do that, that there is no God like him. In a sense, you need to see here the repentance. What you need to see is, firstly, they are crying out for God. He is the one they want, and he is the one that they need. They acknowledge what he's done in the past, and they believe he can do it in the future. But I think also here we need to see this in verse 4, when they say that no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, that is a statement of utter devotion to the holy, set-apart, distinct, unlike any other God, from a nation who was separated from their God because of their habitual behaviour of adultery, and ultimately, secondarily, because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. And so there is no one like him, and he acts for those who wait for him. In other words, there is an understanding that their faith and their trust hasn't been in him. And so he is not going to act for them until they do trust. And so the idea is that you are our God. We are going to trust. We are going to wait. And we know that you will come. And so that goes on. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness who the, um, those who remember you in your ways behold you are angry and we sinned in our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved and that's a difficult verse to translate it might mean that we might be saved but the idea I think either way is clear that that God 
you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, that God is for the righteous, but they are in sin so that they need to be saved. They need to be redeemed so that they can become the righteous one that God has fellowship with. And that's when verse six comes, which again is a fairly well-known verse. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Many versions here say a dirty rag. And the actual thing being referred to here in the Hebrew is menstrual rags. The idea that every good deed they do is like um, a ceremonially unclean under Mosaic law at the time Isaiah was written, menstrual rag, that really there was nothing but offence to be given by their righteous deeds. They are acknowledging and recognising their uncleanliness, their unrighteousness, the fact that God only dwells with the righteous and that they need to be saved. And therefore the verse goes on, we all fade like a leaf and our inequities like the wind take us away. In other words, their, their, their passing, their death, their insignificance, goes with their sins. Their sins is the cause of that, if you like. And so verse seven, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. I think here, it's very important that we understand this, that back in chapter five of Isaiah, the idea that um, God would harden the hearts of Israel so they could not repent is such that it's so significant in the whole of the book of Isaiah and here at this point they're simply saying this you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities and there is a recognition that their blindness was their fault that, that there is an acknowledgement that even in the hardening of their hearts that God's ways were righteous now that's quite shocking I know there's so many things that God does and has done in my life where I've been like, no, 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 that's not good. And we have to take a step back and say, well, hold on a second. He's God and we're not. And all of his ways are good. All of his ways are just. And, and here in this text, this people have been blinded. They were blinded for their idolatry in Isaiah chapter 5. They were blinded for their rejection of the Messiah in the Gospels. And this is a nation that has spent centuries being blinded specifically so they would be unable to repent. And now as God starts to open their eyes, or again, perhaps the remnant of believers, the few who do believe, praying on behalf of others. But there is an acknowledgement that God's ways in hardening were just. And that their sin has led them to this situation. And this is the issue. They are dealing with their sin. But they say, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Now, I don't want to get into, for those of you who are familiar with it, to the whole free grace, lordship, salvation controversy in any meaningful way. But what I will say is this, that what is happening here is faith. It's clearly faith, but it's a faith that is more than just an intellectual assent. What they're saying is, you, O Lord, you, O Yahweh, the name of God, you are our father. We know who you are and this is who you are. 
You're the potter and we're just the clay. You're the one who gets to decide what you do. Like hardening people's hearts for centuries. And we're just the clay and we don't get to complain, but we just cry out to you. And I want us to see and understand that there is in all of this acknowledgement of God and his sovereignty and his right to do as he wishes. There is, an, there is a, a, a reasoning in that acknowledgement that if God can harden hearts, if God is the one who determines who cries out, and who doesn't cry out, then when you can cry out, you cry out to him because he's the only one who can open the eyes. He's the only one who can save. He's the only one who can make the unrighteous righteous. And there is also here, though, in the midst of this faith, a bowing of the knee. They're not saying we're going to do anything. They're not saying I am pleading my um I'm, I'm promising you this day that I will, you know, live for you and not do anything wrong ever again or what have you. But but then nonetheless, in acknowledging by faith that he is the potter and that they are the clay, there is the this bowing of the knee that I referenced last time, that their faith is not simply an intellectual assent, but it is a faith that involves an acknowledging of who God is and a bowing of the knee before him. And I think that without that, we don't have saving faith and that there can be people who who, um, you know, are raised in the Christian faith or who go to church or who are familiar with Christian teachings and Christian doctrines who have never made that step of coming before God personally and saying, you are in charge. You are God. You are sovereign. You are the potter. I am the clay and I bow before you. And that, I think, is what makes this crying out of repentance so important and so valuable to us. Verse nine, um, we'll wrap it up in verse nine. Verses 10 and 11 and uh, 12 is is more um, specific to them at that time. But verse nine, be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. And ultimately, that's the cry, isn't it? God, you're the one who can forgive sin. You're the one who punishes sin. So the only thing that matters with regards to sin is what you think. Lord, forgive our iniquity. And notice it comes at the end. There's the acknowledgement of their sin. There's the acknowledgement of their failings, the acknowledgement of God being sovereign in his righteous ways. There's the bowing of the knee before his sovereignty. And then, and then there is the pleading for him to forgive their sins. Somehow, in so much of Western evangelicalism, there has been the save me from my sins without any of the stuff that precedes it. And unfortunately, what that does is that doesn't take people from the situation that the Israelites were in. It puts them in that situation. It takes people who say, I am God's, we're God's people. I'm a believer who don't know saving faith. And my hope and my prayer is that there may be somebody out there will be challenged by this. Maybe someone watching this would see that it maybe refers to them, that they maybe had considered themselves to, to have faith because they intellectually agreed with it, but they'd never, they'd never bowed the knee. 
They had never turned from their sin and cried out that God would free them from their sin. And equally, because I don't want to create a bunch of people doubting their faith who should have no reason to doubt. I think if we are struggling with our faith, if we are stumbling into sin occasionally, if we are not living as we should have done, that we can look back and say, you know what? I did bow the knee. He is my God. And we can still repent. We can repent of the things we've done wrong and we can turn back to him. But we can be assured that the God who we turn to for the forgiveness of our sins, as we saw in our context section earlier on in chapter 63, um, that he's faithful. He keeps his promises. And that those who have bowed the knee, those who have acknowledged he is the potter and we're the clay, those who have come before him in that kind of faith, those he will never leave and he will never depart from. God bless.